what if you could do a whole hour of rape jokes, but it would be like a trick? Like if you could hold a whole comedy crowd because you tricked them into thinking it was stand-up, but it's essentially disguising this sort of feminist interrogation of rape culture. But you make it as goofy and fun as possible. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. If you happen to hear church bells or sirens, it's because I'm coming to you live from Paris. Bonjour, bienvenue. Bah oui, hein? mais je lui dis. That's my impersonation of every French person. Thankful to be here and thankful to share today's episode with you, especially because these exceptional employees of the month, Adrian Truscott, who is an incredible performer and revolutionized how we talk about rape culture, how to make funny rape jokes, what is funny. We talk about it all. Plus, I sit down with Obi and SAG winning actor Alicia Reiner, who you may recognize from Origins of the New Black and Better Things. She and I speak about financing indie projects, fertility, anti-Semitism in the Women's March, as well as the challenges of infighting and being pitted against one another, and her new film with Mad Men's Christina Hendricks called Egg. In the wake of Me Too and Time's Up and Dr. Ford, I feel obligated to speak up when issues occur. And this Monday, I was attacked. I'm thankfully safe, although I do need to learn how to say, in whatever country I'm lucky enough to visit, get the fuck off me. It happened in Paris, and in some ways sharing a horrific attack, which happened in a different country, is easier than speaking about the sexism that I experience every day in work. I host a live show and podcast about work. I've written about work culture for The Atlantic, and yet I don't speak out because I'm terrified. It's hard. I'm a freelancer. Media and news outlets may do an excellent job on reporting on issues at other businesses, but don't necessarily offer the same awareness about the ways that they undermine individuals who work with and for them. So even as I risk my economic welfare, going forward, I'm going to speak out, and I'm thankful that I can also move on. So on that note, if you're a fan of Employee of the Month, get on the mailing list because we've got exciting new changes coming this spring. And now, drum roll please, I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Adrienne Truscott. She is a comedian, dance choreographer, dancer, and she first got her start in circus and cabaret as part of the neo-vaudeville Wow Wow Sisters with Tanya Gagne. And her first solo show, Adrienne Truscott's Asking For It, a one-lady rape about comedy starring her pussy and little else, is performed all over the world. I cannot articulate how important it is and how wonderful it is to go see it. And once you hear my conversation with Adrian Truscott, you'll know why. And now, my conversation with Adrian Truscott. Adrian Truscott, I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks. Excited to be here. Um, can you talk a little bit about being a true downtown New York performer? It's not to say that you were not allowed to perform in other places, and it's right. also, we'll talk about you performing all over, in fact. I think, like, yeah, like, aesthetically and in every kind of art form, that's where it, everything made the most sense. Like, I moved to New York to be a dancer in the postmodern downtown scene, and then out of that got into other things, like playing music out, and, you know, I just, I feel like all that stuff mixed up. I, like, I, women I knew who were in the dance world also had punk bands and riot girly bands and all of that kind of mixed up or like you know were dancers but also did kind of punky poetry at like KGB bar stuff like that I have a special uh, fondness for many reasons first of all actually I have a fondness for you because of of your work first and foremost but that you you teach at Wesleyan 
um, or have taught dance. Mm-hmm. You've taught dance at Wesleyan, mm-hmm. and I went there mm. and um, would go to all these postmodern dance concerts. And so when I first started in stand up, my jokes were about. Uh, yeah. Modern dance, which is obviously hysterical to about three people, maybe. Well, people like to make fun of dance. Wait, you went to Wesleyan? Mm-hmm. Me too. When did you graduate? Oh, so long ago. Uh, In 1874? Because yeah. I was 1873. Basically, 1994. And were you very politically involved in college? Yeah, I was. I didn't go to Wesleyan first because I, it was all too close, and I didn't think I'd ever go there. So I first went to college on a field hockey scholarship. Oh, that's amazing! <laughs> at um at American University. Uh, this is we're like trading places. I grew I grew up down the street from American. Oh, University. really? Yeah. At American University, I realized what am I doing chasing a ball? I did a lot of political work there, like clinic abortion clinic defense. And I realized, like, this is not the place for me. These are not my people. Dropped out, ended up going to Wesleyan because I found all these weirdos there that I hadn't understood. I just thought it was, like, where my dad worked. And then I realized it's a brilliant institution with unbelievable offerings and amazing people, which sounds pretty Pollyanna as a, like, most undergrads would always just during undergrad, be like, this place sucks. And I was sort of like, this place is fucking amazing. I felt the same way. And I was also paying for it myself. So I was like, it fucking better be. (laughs) Yes. Well, it makes a complete difference when you know exactly where your money's going. I also didn't understand how many people there were rich because we were not. Yes. We were kind of financially disastrous, our family. So, So, yeah, and then got to New York and then the Vava sisters... We just there wasn't anywhere to do circus, and we we were too impatient as like makers to wait around for like a gig gig or you know like a PS one twenty two gig. Yes, and, which is another downtown theater. Yeah, and the kind of sort of shenanigans we were up to weren't really a- appropriate for like that kind of show because it was all sort of drag cabaret circus adjacent. So we would just do it anywhere. So we started rigging trapezes like, you know, in tiny little rock clubs and stuff. And our, if it was scary to watch us, it wasn't because like, ooh, look at ethereal ladies high in the sky. It was like, look at possibly drunk punky girls so close to the concrete on the floor. <laughs> was more the vibe. <laughs> um, so the first show that I saw you in was Adrian Truscott's Asking For It, a one-lady rape about comedy starring her pussy and little else. Yep. Was that your first solo show where yeah. you're talking, where you said, I'm not going to be, you know, part of a group, and mm-hmm. I'm not also going to be performing through action, but with words, although words are actions. Right. Yes, that was my first show, and that was my first pointedly, like, text-based, voice-based show. Like, the Vava sisters sang funny songs, and we goofed and had dialogue on stage. Um, But I'd always wanted to try stand-up and was always terrified of it. I just listened to it as a kid a lot. Who who did you like? Oh, gosh. I listened to, like, Lily Tomlin, um, Whoopi Goldberg. She has a bidet. Does she? I don't do you know. know I don't know personally, but I heard a story about um, cater waitering at her house. And has it, that's nice to have a bidet. I agree. Or one of those Japanese toilets. It may be a Japanese toilet. I, I have a friend take that back. who has one of those at home. It's really nice. It's awesome. I, I, I apologize for spreading rumors that were incorrect. I, I think that the cater waiter indicated that it was a Japanese toilet. In she may also age. have a bidet. I don't know. Right. 
the truth is I don't know on either. Bidet speaks to a more like vintage European cleansing vibe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe when Off-Broadway Theater starts to pay really well, we can get her both a bidet and yeah. a Japanese toilet. So that, Hopefully. Yeah, yeah. It's going to happen one of these days. Um, but please... Talk to me about Adrian Truscott's Asking For It, a one-lady rape about comedy starring her pussy and little else. Yeah, um, I thought that it was a good idea for stand-up or like some version of my confused brain had this idea. And it was, this was back in 2013. So the only people really, I mean, there were a few people doing rape jokes, right? There was like Sarah Silverman in, in terms of like cool women doing rape jokes that seemed sort of progressive or like what what are we actually talking about and then the rest were just mostly dumb dudes doing it and And it was gross and I just had this like I want to try stand-up and I I don't know I just was like I wonder what if you could do a whole hour of rape jokes but it would be like a trick like if you could hold a whole comedy crowd because you tricked them into thinking it was stand-up but it's essentially disguising this sort of feminist interrogation of rape culture but you make it as goofy and fun as possible. And it is. I mean, I, I've, I've seen your show three times. And, of course, it, it, in Edinburgh, it won, I believe, right? It didn't win the main, main prize. It it won It won what? the, like, spirit of the fringe. It really is this dynamic show. And it looks at sexual assault, rape culture, sexual harassment, all of these things is still funny. Yet you were also uh, naming certain performers who then yeah. were outed later. Um, how did you know? Well, I had been already working on it when the, like, Daniel Tosh big, you know, hullabaloo broke. And that was what made me go, like, oh, shit, I'm not done, but I should make this right now Um, because there's this zeitgeisty moment happening. So people will either love or hate the show in a way that will be useful or, like, love or hate the idea of the show. And so, of course, I just started, like, researching comedians plus rape jokes and like just kind of dissecting different comedians who had rape jokes and which ones of them I felt were gross and just trying to be really like savvy about never being the the woman who could be accused of censoring the boys and their fabulous jokes I was always like I'm uh, you keep making your dumbass lame ass like, middle-of-the-road, dime-a-dozen rape jokes and considering yourself edgy as long as you want. I am not telling you to stop because the more you tell them, the more of an asshole you sound like, and I believe times are changing, and you will just start to sound like a misogynist moron in, like, another five years. What was it like shining the light on Daniel Tosh and Louis C.K., while, particularly in Louis's case, people um, worshipped him. I mean, you know, every other article in the New York Times was a profile of how wonderful Louis C.K. was. And, of course, the New York Times gets heralded for um, championing Time's Up. But, yeah, what was it like shining the light on Louis Louis when people still... Louis C.K. was a weird, interesting journey in that show because... Initially, I called out the comics who had rape jokes or retorts around rape where I thought their jokes were shitty and their own community wasn't holding them up to the standards that they claim are important. Like, was the room laughing? No. The room thought you were an asshole. Like, funny's funny. Okay, well, is it real? Like, And did, funny's funny. Like, when funny's Daniel funny. Tosh says, like, wouldn't it be funny if she got raped right now? Like, there's that's not deeply witty to me. And I feel like if those comics had been honest, their defense of him, if it had actually included like, yeah, but dude, was it funny? Like in the room, in the moment, 
did people fall over like this is a genius moment in comedy? I don't think they did. So just be honest. You can defend his right to say anything. You can defend that he's a smart comic and that was just an off night. But like, don't just pretend that that was funny because I don't believe that it was in the room that night. And, fu- uh, you know, what's funny is funny or funny, you know, yeah. that, that was always used and it continues to be used as a way to say, I'm not really going to hear what you're saying. Yeah. And uh, whether you're at a club and the booker says, well, I just didn't think she was funny. Yeah. You know, and it would continue this cycle of certain right. people Instead of going, do you, have you ever interrogated why you don't think she's funny? Yeah. yeah. Never. But Louis C.K. at the time had, a, the, you know, his like sort of go-to rape joke. I thought was interesting. And so I would often mention him. What was the joke? Um, oh, God, it's so terrible to do jokes out of context. It was his joke about, like, people... He does something where he's like, you know, when people say, like, if you could go back in time, what would you do? And he was like, yeah, I have a friend who's like, I'd kill Hitler. And then Louis C.K. does some Louis-ish thing about, like, how that's so stupid, like, as if you could find Hitler. Like, as if his schleppy friend could just go back in time and automatically be in a circumstance where he'd be able to not only find Hitler, but kill him. And I think Louis' bit then goes into like, and I said like, besides I wouldn't kill him, I think I'd just rape him. And then he would be like sort of, he would feel like he wouldn't be able to invade, you know, Poland because he'd be like, I just want to take a shower. It's not a great joke. Yeah, but it's so interesting because it shows a, a level of awareness of, of what it might feel like to be raped. Yeah. And so that makes me more sad. Right. So back then I was like, well, he's not doing like woman as victim as punchline. He is at least doing something else. And the payoff, if there's a payoff, comes from some other weirder place. And then, but in the course, since I made it in 2013, so I would sort of hold him up as like, don't tell me I censor. Like, I'm not interested in censoring people. I don't think all rapes, all rape jokes by all men are inherently terrible. Like, you can be smart enough to pull off a smart rape joke. Louis C.K. might be that guy. And then, like, it turned into the rumors were mounting. Then the stuff with, you know, I'm sure we both know which comedian like was first talking about him who because she kind of stayed under the radar who's that um jen kirkman was kind of outed as someone who made uh an allusion to a famous comic blah 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 and then she got a bunch of shit well and the story that jen kirkman told i have heard so many times um so whether it's her or not right i doesn't even that story was certainly out there I'm just saying she was one of the first people who took the heat for voicing yeah. it and having a name attached to it. It's also interesting that Jen Kirkman got criticized, got slammed, whether mm-hmm. or not she's the exact person who told that story first. Right. And then when Hannibal Burris was talking about Bill Cosby, yeah, he was heralded for doing this, of course, yeah. and it was the only reason that people finally started listening. And yet he was really unhappy to be associated with it. Right, because sometimes you're just doing a joke and you don't want it. You're not trying to be political or... Yeah. But also it was, yeah, I mean, I was doing a run of asking for it in Philadelphia the week Hannibal Buress did that joke in Philadelphia. So the first thing I did was, like, put Bill Cosby on my table of photos of comedians. And then I was like, well, all these comedians, we are giving them the benefit of the doubt, don't rape. They just do rape jokes. Like, no one's suggesting that just because you do a joke about it 
that you're writing what you know, but cut to a few years later, or maybe you do. And then there was Bill Cosby, and I was like, okay, flipped the script. Now there's someone who never does that kind of material, but turns out was doing the act the entire fucking time. And then I was doing the show in L.A. At an, as a basically like an industry, will someone make a comedy special out of this show the week that the Weinstein story broke? And then I came back and did the show at NYU the day Louis C.K.'s apology was it an in apology? quotes, in, in so many quotes, was published in the New York Times. And then now he's doing the comeback. So, like, I have to adjust my material in the show around Louis C.K. as, like, I'm willing to hold out the possibility that not every dude who's like that and does material like that is a total douchebag. To, like, okay, I'm backing off that. Maybe they actually all are. Okay, Louis C.K.'s a douchebag, you know. But at least, even though he doesn't understand how to do an apology, maybe he's getting some therapy and really thinking about this because he's demonstrated that he at least has the intellect to try to wrap his mind around what's so problematic about his station in the industry, his actions in the industry, and having to come clean. And and the industry's understanding that, like, rumors don't actually hang around that long for no reason. Yes. And then to him showing up and doing the shittiest, gnarliest new material, I'm like, I, you could just do a whole hour on him at this point. I was so sad about the Parkland shooting, you know, mocking Ugh. those teenagers. I was like, wait, so there are teenagers who are trying to do something socially thoughtful and we're just going to, like, mock them for that? Well, and then for me, like, that set just revealed what a tiny, terrified son of a bitch he must have been this whole time. Like, there's just nothing. Whatever felt like uh, we'll let him, like, trespass these taboos because he does it well or because, you know, it's still important to trespass taboos in comedy. But, like, now it just... There was such a moment that he could have revealed some humility and some thoughtfulness and not have just felt like a wounded baby. And then he just has behaved like a wounded baby. We're going to take a break from Employee of the Month to bring you this message from our sponsor. I consider your show the greatest show Uh on assault and harassment. And uh, as a coming from comedy, being a survivor, having worked in sexual assault uh, to bullying and harassment issues, I cannot articulate how much I treasure your show. What was it like when you did the show at first? And of course, none of these people have been outed. And in fact, um, I imagine it was a very tough environment to do in. What what was it like? Well, I did decide to do it at Edinburgh Fringe on purpose because I felt like it's the belly of the beast. But it's a like I meaning what? There's just tons of straight white male comics there. Okay. You know, there's like 3,000 shows there in the course of one month. So you premiered it there in 2013. Yeah. And that's where you won an award for it. Yes. And I had already, with the Vava Sisters, done Edinburgh Fringe a ton. So I felt like I really understood it and I knew my way around it. I knew enough people... Like, even with press that I could say, like, I'm not asking for a good review. I'm just asking you to come because if I if this show strikes the nerve that I'm hoping to strike, I think it's, you know, whatever. And like everything about that 
It may be the only time in my life that I ever understand exactly how to do something right. But I just knew what show to make. I knew I made it free so, like, people would just come, even if it was just a few dudes, a few pints in, just saying, like, there's a naked chick doing something fucked up for free. I just wanted people to come. And that was the part I left out. What? The naked part? Yeah. Yeah. Just no pants. Shoes and a shirt or jacket. You know, like Which a, is a great look like a it. lady. It's so stupid, isn't it? Did you have to put SBF on because it, it's in What's the that? well, it's in the summer. The festival's in the summer. In oh Scotland. yeah, but there's no like Edinburgh doesn't really get summer. It's okay. just rainy and cold. It's important to have like a Jewish mother all of a sudden come in and be like, <laughs> "Wait a you, minute, what are you wearing? <laughs> Were you from, did you have sunscreen? I don't think I did. I don't even bring a raincoat, mom." Um, um, what, but what so was the audience because response? it had this like what like everyone thought it was going to be terrible. Some of the critics were like, "This sounds like a fucking train wreck." You know what? So it got set up perfectly because everyone thought I was going to fail, and then it didn't, and then it sold out, and blah 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 blah. But so there were comics who were doing shows at the festival coming, and I because I was like on doing this very like DIY assault so to speak um i when i would get a good review that would mention like my take on daniel tosh i would tweet the review to him or i would tweet the review to other comics if their names were mentioned in my show were you scared i was no i felt like it really mischievous like it really um I don't know. If Louis C.K. needs to jerk off in a green room in order to get ready to go on stage, I needed to tweet my enemies. <laughs> Not my enemies. I just was like, it would really, I'd be like, ooh, I wonder, you know, virtually none of them ever got back to me. But I was like kind of game for whatever that could have turned into. Who did get back to you? I mean, there is a comic called um, Reginald D. Hunter. Who has a rape joke, and it, I had a photo of him on my table, and he came to the show, and he was a great audience member. Um, he said a couple of, I thought, funny things to me afterwards. You put funny in quotes. I did. Um, someone told me, like the my friend who was running the venue told me that Daniel Tosh's agent, who would have been there maybe just, you know, seeing what other comics they were interested in, that they came, but they certainly didn't talk to me, I, you know. So I, there's a few comics that have tweeted me like, why am I on your table? Take me down. And I'll be like, but you have a rape joke and it's a handsome photo and I don't say a bad word about you. You're just there. Like, and I thought you were a bad boy of comedy, so why the shy face now? Why well, thought you were edgy? Like, I'm happy to own my material, so I assume you're happy to own yours. So I had a few of those kinds of things. But um, it was a little bit like I definitely saw some comics I recognized, even if they weren't famous or mentioned in the show, who I felt sometimes like their body posture. It was they were coming to be like coming, expecting me to fail and to enjoy watching that. I definitely had that feeling sometimes from individuals. I never had that feeling wholesale from the audience. That's it. it you just captured 
what it's like to really do stand-up. You know, now we're yeah. in a world where people can do stand-up in indie rooms and UCB and all these places. And it's actually such a warm environment as far as I'm concerned, right. considering where I started. You were, before we started this interview, you were talking about being at a comedy club called LOL. And I believe that was the comedy club that used to be called Ha, okay, <laughs> with an exclamation point. Yeah. And it was such a seedy environment that... I, on one level, was able to take stand-up with a grain of salt because I was like, no one can be this provincial in their yeah. isms, meaning racism, sexism, homophobia, you know, yeah. go on, the list goes on. Um, yeah, it is such a seedy world where there are so many people who want others to fail. I forget about yeah. that because I left that world and I'm happy that I shut the door on that one. And along those lines, anytime anyone's asked me about, like, so when did you start in stand-up? I always feel like I have to be really clear. Like, I did not come up in stand-up. That is hard. I did not pay those particular dues. I've paid my own dues. But, you know, in a dance rehearsal, it's like if you are the funny one in the cast, you get like a massage at the end of it. You know what I mean? Like, I was coming at it from a decidedly sort of queer cabaret performance arty. I'm now dipping my foot into stand-up. So I also felt that. Like, in some ways, that let me off the hook because for a first stand-up show, no matter what, it was, I guess, impressive that I was pulling it off. And to pull off, you know, like I hadn't done years of five to seven minutes at open mics. I've just started with an hour of rape jokes. But that comes from being more of a, like, theater geeky maker. You know what I mean? You created an exceptional show, and I was so pleased and proud uh, as a Jewish mother, not that you need one. Yeah. Um, By the rave reviews. I was, too. I mean, that felt incredible. And then the reviews kept coming in, and some of them even very humbly admitting to their initial take that they were like, "I, I was going to this show already to hate it like I was already enjoying hating it but and that that was pretty amazing and in a goofy way it really struck me that the title of asking for it kind of deepened because the show that show does not explicitly say that I was raped because I didn't want that show to be to behave like an autobiographical one woman show I wanted it to be like about comedy and about culture so I never say in that show that that happened to me, but it did. And so... One in four women. Yeah. I mean... Just look around any room. Any room. But the sort of flip, and I do feel goofy when I say this, but, you know, I did not ask for what happened to me. And then when I made asking for it, I had these feelings like, well, I did a Kickstarter. I'm definitely asking for support for this show. And then I got it. And I only asked for like four grand, but I got it. And then... I remembered thinking, like, well, here's an irony, Truscott. You know, if this show, if if this show doesn't succeed, then you were asking for it, like, as a as an art maker, like you're putting something very dodgy out there, very potential, like provocative and with the potential to fail. So if it comes back that critics don't like this show, you're gonna feel it, and it's gonna be legit. You put something out there, and if the response isn't what you want. You will have gotten what you were, you know what I mean? Like, yes, I did. I, I know the feeling. So, so I had this like, like brainy irony moment of like, well, wouldn't that be something? And then, and then the response was like, actually, I was just asking to be heard on this topic, and I was heard loud and clear. 
And that was like ridiculous. Like I, I never would have predicted or imagined like the depth of how satisfying and healing that was, even though in the moment I was still just trying to make my jokes better. I wasn't trying to, I did, I wasn't actively trying to heal myself. I was trying to like make a space where people like me got to laugh about the things you should laugh at. And are you still touring the show? Yeah. And you're doing many shows? Yeah. You've, you've some coming up at MIT and Chicago, and uh, MIT is not yeah. in Chicago, but also. Yeah. So you're, you're touring shows at universities and, and yeah, museums? Yeah, uh, museums, universities, theater still, and festivals. I just did the Push Festival in Vancouver, which is an amazing festival. I'm doing Fusebox Festival in Austin in April. And I keep going to Germany for one show of asking for it at a time. It's weird. <laughs> I keep making these long trips to do one night and then come home. Um, so, yeah, I'm doing Asking For It. I'm doing the show that I made right after that. What's that show? It's called Adrian Truscott's A One-Trick Pony or Andy Kaufman's A Feminist Performance Artist and I'm a Comedian. It was intentionally as long as the Asking For It one because it was very much a, like, second album show. And were you nervous? I'm guessing that that the title is in reference to the fact that you had this hit show as your first show. Oh, God, yeah. I sort of thought I'll be clever and make a show that looks like a failure. And I'll frame it around Andy Kaufman so people know I know. You know, like if you know Andy Kaufman, you'll know that this is supposed to be like, wait, is this supposed to happen? Is this a disaster or not? But I, that show was not well received. People, I got torn to shreds at Edinburgh with that show. Like two stars across the board and a lot of like, told you, not up to par. So it was really painful, but really fascinating. And I just kept making the show better. Good for you. I just was like, I have to keep going out on, like maybe, so I still thought it was a good show. I thought, some people don't get it. I also thought it's not as good as you thought it was, Adrian, and maybe you needed to work harder. What, 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 what did you do to make it better? Well, in the way that I, like when I thought like you, okay, you, you don't like it, but you also didn't get it. Part of me was, had to go, okay, like I like to fuck with an audience in that way about like maybe this is a real fuck up. Maybe this, you know, so... I had to be like, I had to focus on how do you do that but be clearer without capitulating and just making it an easy, palatable show. If I think this guy who's saying I'm stupid, how do I get him to realize I'm not stupid, he's stupid, or just make it better enough, clear enough that he will get what I'm doing? So instead of just going, you're stupid and you don't get it, saying, well, I'm not being as clear as I think I am. Adrian Trescott, thank you for being an employee of the month. I hope you will wear SPF whether or not you have pants on. I definitely will on my bottom. And thank you for your beautiful, beautiful shows. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Adrian Trescott. And now, my conversation with SAG and Obi-winning actor and producer Alicia Reiner. She, in addition to being an Employee of the Month award winner this month, is also being awarded, along with her collaborative team on the film Egg, the first Women in the Arts and Media acclaimed collaboration award, which honors the reality that anything worth doing requires a team. We talk about that and so much more. Here is Alicia Reiner. Reiner. 
I'm so thrilled to have you here. You have played so many, I want to say, lawyers and government officials. Smart chicks. Um, do you get like a honorary 401k? <laughs> that would be awesome. You know, it's really interesting. A lot of government officials don't have such yes. great 401ks. Oh, oh, oh but I know. Um, yeah. My stepdad actually works with both the CIA as in Culinary Institute oh. <laughs> and the CIA as in Secret Service. Wow. And CIA and Secret Service get nothing. And their families, if anything happens to them, there's no life insurance, there's no college education for their children. So he actually helped run an organization for a very long time or was on the board that helps raise money for those families so that their children and their wives are taken care of. It makes me so sad. It's so sick. It's also interesting with the CIA, the second CIA, because it tends to vote conservative, I assume. And yeah. they're the ones who are voting to undermine their own economic yep. sustainability mm-hmm. and well-being. Okay. Wow. Um but I also wanted to ask, like, being able to play these kinds of roles, and I'm, I'm going to list some of the, you know, Orange is the New Black to Law and Order and, of course, How to Get Away with Murder. Um, and we'll talk about equity as well. I really would love to talk about mm-hmm. that too. But but being able to play the, these more serious roles or at least roles where you're taken – you're th- seen as intelligent. Mm-hmm. How did that impact you as a female, as an actor, as a human? Well – It's funny, as an actor, I think you always want to play the thing that no one will cast you as. Okay, got it. That's just the truth, (laughs) right? So I've been, I've always been the smart professional one. And if someone's willing to cast me as stupid, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Um, If someone's willing to cast me as um, lower class, I'm so excited because I tend to be the professional, upper middle class. Educated. Educated um, bitch. You know, there's there's a little bit of that. But aren't those roles when it's – you know, when you say a bitch, isn't isn't that role mean it has character to it and that there's more depth in, in that or no? I think at this moment in my life, I'm just outrageously grateful. And when you – when it's written well. Yes. Yeah. When it's complex, I love it. You know, playing Fig for seven years, she has had such a spectacular journey. Okay, so I w- definitely want to talk about this. We've had um, – and. Audience, you can go back and, and listen to Piper Kerman, who Orange is the New Black is a series based on a book that she wrote about her life. Um, and, of course, it's adapted to television, so it is inspired by at this point, I would say. Um, but yet, tell us about you were the assistant warden. And first, if you can tell me how you got that role. So I first auditioned for Alex. Okay. And I it was one of the best pilots I'd ever read, and I didn't get it, and I was heartbroken. And then I auditioned to play her best friend, and I didn't get it, and I was heartbroken. And then they offered me this, like, two-line role of Fig. and Was this auditioning for Genji? The yes, the, the first audition was for Genji. The second, like for her in the room, and we had this great repartee. Um, and uh, and I was told actually don't talk to her at all, and I I, I broke the rule. Um, so interesting. Yeah. Okay, and I do you know? Can you in hindsight? 
Can yeah. you remember what you were thinking when you're like, F it, I'm going to talk to her? Well, it it wasn't don't talk to her. It wasn't Woody Allen style. Okay. But it was <laughs> don't expect a lot of chit-chat. So I did my Alex, and I felt good about my work. And then I was I was like, okay, I'm going to throw a bone. And uh, and I asked her about working on the Tracy Ullman show. Oh, smart. And I said that, you know, that was some of my favorite amazing character work. And what was it like to work on that? And she said it was the best job I've ever done. We would, you know, we had really human hours of nine to five. Tracy ran a great ship. And we taped one day a week and we would drink red wine at that thing. And I... Okay, because that that show was so brilliant, right? Didn't it like make like I feel like that Carol Burnett and I Love Lucy are the things that made me want to do this, yes. right? Yes. So I loved that show and the fact that she had written on it. I had to say something, um, and then I, I as I walked out, I said, "Well, someday we'll be drinking red wine together on the show," and then I didn't get it. <laughs> And the only time I'd ever done that before was a pilot that I actually got. So I was like, oh, I guess I can never do this ever again. Um, and then and then it all came to be in the end. Fabulous. Yeah. It, it did seem like an extremely meaty role f- watching it. How did it feel playing? Um, you know, in the beginning, it, it really played as – like it was two lines to start. So yes, I didn't wow. know what it would be. Uh and being the actress that I am, I dove deep for those two lines. I was like, well, if this becomes anything. I remember getting the job and um, I had already read the whole memoir and I got the two lines and I went and I did as much research as I can and I visited a prison and I interviewed. Just for the audition? For no. a two-line role? Well, for the for, – I didn't audition for the two-line role. Okay. So they, I auditioned for Alex – then I auditioned for her best friend, and then they offered me Fig. Okay. Um, so once they offered me Fig, I um, I started like I went and visited a prison, and I interviewed all these wardens and former wardens, and no, actually, no current wardens would speak to me, but former assistants and people who taught in prisons and tried to like wrap my head around this world and. I think one of the things that was great was I talked to people who worked in the prison who really did want to do well and be good to these, I don't want to say women because some some were men, some were were Mm. women. And so I really believe that everyone thinks they're doing a great job and doing the best they can. And um, and so – Fig from the beginning in my head was always doing the best she could. Yes. And so then when, like, it turned out she was stealing, I was like, oh, okay. Because you never know until you read the next episode. And I was like, okay. And then I had to, like, yeah, yeah. And I had to then go, okay, why is she doing that and what but she I really believe that she wants the best for these women and her version of the best for these women is a stricter version you know it might not be what Alicia thinks is the best for these women is that the bulk of it is 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 finding out what are what is so and so thinking or what is the essence of your job oh god such a good question i think 
I, I don't know the answer to that. It's, it's a very mystical art to me yeah. that I have a lot of tools for. There, it's like a big, it's a big, big toolkit, and um, and you build that. Oh, like it started as a Fisher Price, and and then it gets bigger and bigger, and now it's like this big. You know, I have a cellar of yeah. tools, and different characters need different things, and um, and they speak to you, and they ask for different things. You know, there are certain characters where I'd use an animal exercise or a, and certain I wouldn't even think of that. You know, and certain just. A voice comes and you just, you know, Fig has a specific voice and I don't know where I got that voice. She just, she came to the table with that voice. And then the other amazing thing is you have no performance is one human. And I love that, you know, Meryl Streep points that out a lot. Um, Patricia Arquette recently pointed that out. Like your hair, your makeup, your wardrobe, um, the brilliance in our case of Angel who makes... Uh, Fig's hair, Figalicious, as she says, and Jen Rogan, our costume designer, who's also our costume designer on Egg, um, is brilliant. And they help create this human that then makes you feel more like the human in that John Gilgood-ish way. I want to talk about Egg, which you um, – is. Probably one of your babies. Mm, <laughs> you may consider the film one of your babies. Mm. Um, and before we get there, I do also want to talk about grief because you did a little short yeah. about it and speed grieving. Yeah. Um, and in part also because you brought up you have all these tools in your toolbox and you'd written publicly about your own experiences with grief as mm-hmm. well. And then it seems like you did this short film about yeah, it too. Yeah. And I was curious when you were in the midst of grieving – how did it help and how was it hard to work? Well, does that question make sense? Absolutely. I um, I think I made speed grieving because I was shocked by people's inability to talk about loss. Until you lose a parent very young and um, suddenly you don't know people's inability. Um, and... It made me deeply aware of how youth-based our culture is, how the fear of death and aging in our culture. I had no idea. And and how ill-prepared – we become so ill-prepared for the certainty of uncertainty. Correct. Our culture – I mean, if you look at Trump, it's all about everything's going to get fixed. Mm-hmm. And there's always going to be a happy ending. And, and unfortunately, death is part of life. And so therefore, no, it's not necessarily a happy ending, you know, and to be able to live with all of these things – Totally. And I I sort of want to make like a tiny tangent because one of the things I do do is I listen to podcasts before bed to like chill myself out. Yeah. And I listen to very like chilling, like relaxing podcasts before bed. Not the argument, you know, (laughs) but um, things like Tara Brock. Oh, she's been on the show twice. Oh, my God. I love her. (laughs) Oh, I love her. So I was listening to her a couple nights ago, and someone called in and said, how do we handle this moment? How do we have hope in this moment? And the answer, she actually had a guest monk on. I know, because I listened to the same episode yesterday. You know what I'm talking about. And, well, you just said uncertainty. And, And he said, you embrace... The uncertainty of the moment, you embrace that this too shall pass. He yeah. will not 
be president forever. Yes. And there's a hope in that. And that's the joy of um, Buddhism is that everything will pass. Everything changes, which is, you know, sort of what speed grieving was all about. Um, I, I was shocked by this inability. And I had never wanted to produce or make art. I just wanted to act. And I was actually very against making my own work, I think, in part because there's this idea of vanity productions. Um, yep. And I hated for, that. For ac- actors are seen as having these vanity productions if, if they uh, venture into an area of producing or yeah, writing yeah. or directing. Which, thank God, I feel like that was 10 years ago and now that's – that's really – there have been some real barrier breaking. I think Lena Dunham was an incredible version of that. Mindy Kaling, you know, Pamela Adlon, these – Jill Soloway, these incredible women. Shonda Rhyme, like I can go on. Genji, these incredible women who wore more than one hat and and changed the stereotype around that. And so those are the, the famous versions, the ones mm-hmm. who, who have been um, – rewarded for it, I would say, critically. I wanted to ask you about what it's like to be venturing into that area, which you did with um, first with Equity and then with Egg, yeah. when you don't necessarily have the same level of clout. And of course, a lot of them didn't earn that clout until yeah. Their, yeah. these productions came to be. But well, I was just curious what it's like working on a smaller production. I think Speed Grieving was a tiny production. And that was incredibly rewarding because I did it out of like cells of my body needed to talk about this thing. And the only way I know how to do that, I don't write books and I don't, but I know how to make art. And I'm a collaborator. I love to work with people. So I had this idea for Speed Grieving and I hired a writer and I hired a director and I found a a posse and we made this piece of art. And then we also created, speaking of tools, I worked with 10 grief counselors and uh, social workers to create a a guide, like a discussion guide that goes with the film to help people process both in group settings and in journaling, uh, which is on the I, I hate to say this because people don't really do this anymore, but on the disc. Um, <laughs> on the CD? Old school, yeah. yeah. On the cassette On the tape? DVD, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but you also co-wrote. On the album, yeah. You co-wrote Equity. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask, what does that mean to co-write? So in Equity's case, I really like to say that Amy Fox wrote the script. Um, what happened with that was Sarah came to me and said, um, we and will you tell the audience who Sarah is? Sure, Sarah Megan Thomas uh, was my producing partner on that movie. And she and I knew each other and we were looking for a project to work on together. And And we kept, went back and forth on so many ideas. And we had some very specific criteria about wanting to tell a female-driven story, wanting to actually make money. You know, that was a huge criteria. So at that moment, we were like, romantic comedies don't make money. Her first movie was a um, like a pretty much a romantic comedy, and it was hard to sell. And she was like, I don't want to do that again. So we had lots of amazing romantic comedy ideas that we didn't follow up on. Um, and one day she came to me and she's like, what about a woman on Wall Street? Her husband works on Wall Street. And I didn't want to do that because I have some – at the time, actually – working through that 
project helped me work through those issues. The most fun thing about being an artist is you sort of it's it's free therapy. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so I was like, oh, I don't I don't like those people. You know, I had some biases about those people who make a lot of money on Wall Street. And then I was having and make money for the sake of money. Correct. I was having coffee with a dear friend who is a consultant about diversity and women in the business sector and uh, and started actually a nonprofit called All In Together, Lauren Chavez. And oh, you, you did a talk together at Google. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, my God. You know everything. Google is um, incredible. Google's amazing. I'm going to go do a talk on egg, too, uh, oh, um, I'm with s- the Gina Davis Institute. Oh, the fabulous. Yay. So, um, so I was talking to her, and she said, not only do I think you should make this movie, but you have to make this movie because there are so many incredible women in this world, and nobody knows about it. We, it's never been explored. And I was like, okay. And then I started doing a deep dive about these women and fell in love with these incredible women, who, many of whom became our investors. Um, in the film. In, yes, they invested in equity, and I'm ha- happy to say that they made 115% back very quickly. Um, so it was a good investment for them. Um, and in reference to the writing of it, Sarah and I wrote a treatment together and talked about who we wanted to be, like what the characters would be, what, you know, sort of a general, um, very general outline. I will say she very much wanted to be the woman who worked on Wall Street. Um, and we knew we would both be supporting and there would be a, a leading other person because we didn't want to try and wear too many hats all at the same yeah. time. And uh, and I, so I ended up being the, the lawyer again, which I, I was a little hesitant about because I've played the lawyer so many times. But I was like, okay. But the most exciting and awesome part of it was I said, I want to be a woman married to another woman, and I want to be a woman married to a black woman because I want to create another role for an LGBTQ person. I want to create another role for a woman, and I want to create another role for someone of diverse background. And I got to be the boss, so I got to say that. Um, and that was one of my favorite things about the the writing of it. And then we brought Amy on, and Amy is a brilliant writer. And we all developed it together, you know, but she did the writing. Uh, of course, you know, are there lines in there? Are there words in there that I wrote? Sure, but Amy wrote it. Egg. Egg. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was um, at N- an NYU fertility clinic where it says NYU mm. Fertility Clinic, and it's right next to the river, and it's, I think, 6 a.m. that you have to go. <laughs> you have to go really early. And a friend's wife comes over, and she says, what are you doing here? And I thought it was hysterical because I was like, it says fertility clinic above <laughs> my head. It's six what, in yeah, the morning. Yeah, yeah. What do you <laughs> think I'm doing like here? And we are like two steps away from the East River. Yeah, yeah. I'm just getting coffee. I didn't, there was nowhere to get coffee in Brooklyn. <laughs> it's one of those interesting things once you dive into. And I first read the script over 10 years ago. And I thought it was – it said so many things about 
parenthood and career and art and commerce and where those four things intersect. Um, we're really reevaluating gender and sexuality and opening our paradigms around that. And yet, we haven't talked about that in reference to parenting on a, such a deep level in reference to, you know, because this is an employee of the month, particularly in reference to employee and how when you look at business, per, you know, particularly Wall Street or any other law, whatever it is, the way pregnancy and motherhood impact women's careers impact women's um, wage, you know, that that wage gap. I was listening to Ezra talk about it. And, Ezra and, Klein. Yeah, yeah. On employee of the month. And yeah. it's so true. And I think as we rethink our structure, you know, our tribe, it's really important that we rethink what it is to be a parent. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting to talk about in terms of motherhood offers this cultural capital, this social capital, which is extremely important in the way that we talk about men going off to pay go- golf. And this is a huge stereotype. You know, I'm sure they play other sports, too. Um, but that that they get to know each other and then they hire mm-hmm. each other through that. And having children and being a mom is the socially accepted norm. And so in some ways, it offers you a certain perk, right, yep. in that way of being accepted in the in the work world. And then on the flip side, uh, financially, total it's a, it, you get penalized for it. And I think many, many, many women, because they're financially penalized for it, decide not to go back to work and are like, oh, yeah, fuck it. It's well, not and, worth it. And that – we can claim that's a conscious decision, but that is a decision based on the economics of, oh, my – you know, in order to have child care. Yeah. Um, and the good news story of that is some of those women become entrepreneurs and start their own thing. You know, Kara Golden, who started Hint Water, is a yes. great example. Um, some of them do go back to work later and in fantastic ways. But sometimes – there's unfulfilled dreams there, just like with some women who choose to have the career path that they want. They have to give up being a mother in the way that they want. I'm excited about your film also because it looks at like, do you want to have children? Some people don't. Um, some people have children not thinking they did want to, and then it turns out they do. You know, there's, there's just it runs the gamut. And my biggest dream in making the movie, there are a couple. One is that. People are curious and courageous enough to ask themselves the questions. You know, it's like when I saw The Matrix and it's like I remember leaving and hoping to God that my husband got it in the way that I got it because if he didn't, I didn't know if I could be married to him anymore. And the the level of consciousness that we walk through the world with um, is a really big theme of the movie of like, are you willing to make these decisions really consciously? It's it's so interesting to talk about this with you. My graduate research was on um, adolescent pregnancy. And at the time I was looking at, I interviewed, you know, over 200 women who were um, Latina at risk adolescent moms because the numbers were decreasing for what would be considered Caucasian, even though you can be white and black and white and Latinx. And 
so the numbers were decreasing for African Americans and 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 Caucasian, but they were increasing at the time for what would now be called Latinx. Yeah, and those decisions when I was talking to teen moms, I was curious about why they were having second kids because of the consciousness question and how much is developmentally are you at a point where you can make these decisions for yourself? Well, once you become a parent, those kinds of questions about are you developmentally ready um, are irrelevant. Because you need to be. Like, I'm so curious, what what would you say you learned? Like, what what was your biggest takeaway? My biggest takeaway is that they were – conscious of the reality that whether or not they graduated from high school, Mm -hmm. they were going to be working at a minimum wage job either Mm -hmm. way. And that was honest, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. that the exception to the rule would be the one who would be able to get out. Wow. Um, I also wanted to ask you about feminism. You're extremely active, uh, have been for a long time. And I, you know, we, I spoke about Google, which I'm such a fan of Google because it was the one institution which... I hope everyone follows this model of they asked for 10 very specific things. They all marched together. They mm-hmm. all walked out together, uh, male, female, trans, you name it, awesome. all over the world. Mm-hmm. And they were able to make some mm-hmm. some change. Now, granted, it is Google, but we do need these massive corporations yeah. Yeah. to be the ones leading the way, unfortunately, because our government is is not. I was curious in terms of – you're also Jewish. I was curious about the Women's March, um, how you wrestled with that yeah. personally, if you're if you're willing to talk about it. Of course. I, I did wrestle with it a lot. Um, it was deeply uncomfortable for me. And I called, you know, the way I do everything is a lot of research. Like, I'm a yeah. researcher. Um, it's the way I parent. It's the way... It's it's acting. It's you listen, you know. And I so I just called a lot of people I find incredibly smart and wise and listened and said, like, talk to me. So I talked to some of the founders of the Women's March of the original, you know, Sarah Sophie and Ginny and um, Ginny Suss and yeah. Sarah Sophie Flicker. Yeah. And uh, and I called my rabbi and I talked to a lot of different people about it and um and then I had to find my own truth. And that's the hardest thing is like I agreed with some people. I disagreed with some people. But at the end of the day, it's like what's your truth on it? And my truth on it was the first time around when, ironically, I met Christina Hendricks. Um, who, who is your co-star yeah. in Egg? And we met down there. We were with the Creative Coalition petitioning for the NEA and also marching while we were there. And... At the first Women's March, I had no idea who the organizers were, and I did not care. And the next year, I had no idea who the organizers were, and I didn't care. And I was marching and rallying and standing up to be with women, and it was more as a protest of Trump, not a not anything else. And to stand with women and say, we are together in this, and to listen to other women, and to be part of a coalition of women who are committed to change. I did not want to give that up this year. At the end of the day, I was deeply unwilling, and I felt that to call the march anti-Semitic was not true. 
Um, is there a, an organizer who is possibly anti-Semitic? Sure, that's very possible. But I was not marching for her. Um, I was marching for me and my fellow women. And that became really clear to me. And I was, you know, I decided to perform with Resistance Revival Chorus. And we were rallying and singing and marching for our fellow woman, for equality for all, you know, for safety for all, for the principles that the Women's March, I think, stand for. Um, and at the end of the day, I didn't want to miss that for what I felt, in fact, if anything, was people trying to put a wedge in this. And pitting women against each yes, other? yes. I'm so glad that you continue to fight for environmental causes, for women's rights, for human rights, frankly. Um, and I want to just encourage everyone to go check out Egg. Um, I have watched your career, Virgin, since kissing Jessica Stein. <laughs> and I'm, I'm so thrilled to have Where you. Where I played an artist. Indeed. Just like an egg. Oh, my God. I forgot that. Full circle. So good. Um, congratulations on becoming an employee of the month. And thank you. Thank you. you. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. I want to thank Adrian Truscott and Alicia Reiner, as well as Lady Rizzo for composing our theme song. Our sponsors, Russ and Daughters and Factory, as well as Cameron Drews for editing this show together, as well as everyone at Slate. And again, go to employeeofthemonthshow.com. That's employeeofthemonthshow.com to get on the mailing list. You can also email me at employeeofthemonthshow at gmail.com or find me on Instagram or Twitter. And otherwise, I'll talk to you next week. I'm Katie Lazarus. Have a good one.